I'm so glad to be here with you again um, this morning. It's uh, a wonderful thing to know that there are churches across this province that are committed to the exposition of God's Word, and I think you guys are lucky you have one of my favorite expositors here. In fact, I didn't tell John this, but we're going through the book of, this thing's all caught in my sleeve, that's what it is. <laughs> we're going through the book of Philippians, and uh, I was banging my head on my desk, and I didn't know what to do, and so I went to y'all's website, and I found a sermon on Philippians. You guys just went through it, and I jotted down a few notes, saved my, my, my skin a few Sundays ago. Anyway, uh, so glad to be here with you. Uh, I was looking at the road report early this morning, and I thought, you know, I really don't like the idea of driving up alone, and I don't like the idea of dying alone, so I brought these young guys with me today so that they could at least... <laughs> record my final words on the highway should that happen. No, I brought them here because they're all going to be preachers one day and uh, hopefully that they'll... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. They're not going to be. Well, they might be. Hopefully. That would be a great thing, actually. Um, if you have your Bible with you, uh, go to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, the book of Psalms. Sorry, not Philippians. See, I, I told you I've been in Philippians. Psalms, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you just put your hand up. Uh, they'll bring one to you. If you do not own a Bible at home, that is a gift for you to keep. You can, you can have that one. Um, the Psalms have always been a, a precious treasure for God's people. Um, people who know and love the Lord, have been singing the psalms, uh, meditating on the psalms for thousands of years and finding much treasure and fruit in them. Before we dive into the, the text, I think it's important to tell you this morning that Psalm 1 uh, happens to be what some call a, a wisdom psalm. That is, there are different types of psalms uh, psalm 1 is a psalm that is called a wisdom song. It also kind of kicks off the whole book of psalms in a really unique way. We're not going to focus much on that this morning, but it's a wisdom song. And that means it, it finds company with various other portions of wisdom literature that we find in the scriptures, like the book of Proverbs or the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, and the whole point of wisdom literature, when we open it up, is to, to draw significant contrasts between wisdom and folly. We see that all over wisdom literature. So much of wisdom literature is caught up in presenting us with absolute polarities, uh, which is exactly what we see here in this psalm. We're presented with a, a contrast between two people, Okay, the, the righteous and the wicked. And each of these people is following a particular way of living. The, the, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Psalm 1 presents us with 
ideals. That's another thing that wisdom literature does. It presents us with ideals, or rather with picture of the way things are supposed to be, right? An ideal situation, the way things are supposed to be. And it's not the aim of the author in this text necessarily to start explaining all of the inconsistencies that we often witness in our experience. For example, many of you probably know people who though they fit into the category of the righteous, maybe their lives don't look very righteous all the time. In fact, many, any, anybody who's just read the Bible you'll know that even some of the most stalwarts of the faith, men like Abraham or David, you, you know by reading the Bible that though these men were spoken of as being righteous, the Bible is not ignorant of the inconsistencies that have often plagued God's people, and that plague us today. That being said, someone presents us with a sharp antithesis between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's a, there's a clash, okay? There's a principial clash that's being played out through the course of human history between two ways of seeing the world and two ways of living within it. And it's the psalmist's intention to make the war between these competing principles plain enough for us to see. What we come to understand when we read the rest of the Bible is that God is redeeming a people. Isn't that great? God is redeeming a people and he is progressively shaping them to be a holy people. He is, by the work of His Spirit and His Word, what He's doing is He's chipping away at those inconsistencies in order to fit us for His kingdom as He brings our lives into conformity with the kind of pictures we get from Psalm chapter 1. This is what God is doing. So if you're a Christian here this morning, As we look at the righteous man of this text, be encouraged. Be encouraged. One day, what is here presented as an ideal will be your possession, not only to some lesser degree as you now experience it today, but fully and completely yours. This is what God is doing in your life. The picture will be an accurate reflection of your life when God has finished his work in you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this, your word. We ask now that you would give wisdom, you would give words to speak, that we would hear your word and be changed by it. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this community. They would have a sense of their vital calling in this world. That they would walk in the truth of your word. They would not listen to the voices of this world that seek to 
pull them aside. And we would all be changed as we are confronted with your word even this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At first glance, the text draws a point of distinction between the righteous and the wicked in the matter of happiness and delight. We read these words, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stand, no, nor sorry, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. The word here translated blessed can actually be rendered happy. You could say happy is the man. Listen. God is not opposed to your happiness. He's not some cosmic killjoy sitting up in heaven, anxiously concerned only with the slightest possibility that somebody somewhere out there in the world is having a little bit of fun. And if that's what you think about God, you've got them all wrong. The Westminster Divines actually taught that far from being opposed to our happiness... It is our happiness that is essential to us bringing glory to God. Our happiness is actually part of the reason why God created us in the first place. The Shorter Catechism says this, it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Or you could ask it this way, for what ultimate purpose did God create mankind? And the answer comes back, Man's chief end is to glorify God and get this, to enjoy Him forever. That is, God created you primarily for His glory. And when you enjoy Him, when you are happy in Him, and you take pleasure in Him, when you are ravished by the beauty of His majesty, and you meditate upon His redemptive acts towards you, it is not somehow opposed to His glory. In fact, it is actually that which brings Him most glory. And so John Piper has gone down in print numerous times, numerous times saying this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied, or you could say happy, in Him. You see, God is not opposed to our happiness. God wants you to be happy. He simply knows something that we often forget, that the most ultimate sensation of joy, happiness, and satisfaction that you could ever experience are not found in the petty pleasures of this world. They're found in Him. And when we forget that, that's when we begin to lose our way. Well, how does the man in the psalm find this happiness? How does he grab hold of it? Well, first, we're given a few things that he does not do. Okay? There, there are three actions here. All have to do with one's relationship to the influencing powers of the world. Okay, look down in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There are three actions mentioned here that are important to note. To walk, to stand, and to sit. These three actions, they they actually represent three levels to one's departure from God. First, we see that this blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Very simply, what what is meant here is that the blessed individual does not listen to the instruction or advice of the wicked. There is a battle out there in the world today, and it's been raging on in the culture for a very long time. At times, we can be almost ignorant of it. The battle is for the hearts and minds of people. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity, towards the truth of Scripture. And as if that were not enough, everywhere you turn, your mind is bombarded by godless ideas, most of them birthed in the anti-God universities of our day and other institutions. You see, it's on the TV, it's on the internet, it's in the movies, magazines, books, on billboards, it's plastered all over the walls of our art galleries and museums. It's everywhere you go. Your mind, every day, is besieged. It's almost like unbelief is out there floating around in the drinking water, and you just kind of pick it up without realizing it. If you're not careful, the culture will eat you up and your faith. Your faith will be shipwrecked as you are slowly but surely assimilated into the spirit of the age. This is why we need to resist, you see. We're called to resistance. That's why he has all these negative commands in this passage. Eventually, he who wins the battle of the mind will inevitably win the whole man. The same man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. You see, there's a a logical connection here that I I don't want you to miss. Don't be fooled. You cannot long fill your mind with sinful thinking of the world or soak yourself in the anti-God philosophy of our day and expect that it will not have a practical effect on how you live your life. Don't be fooled. One who continually drinks from the fountain of the wicked soon will see wickedness blossom in his behavior. And if nothing changes, he will soon take his seat among the sneering scoffers of our day. You see, because thinking leads to behaving. And eventually, 
both thinking and behaving lead to belonging in this passage. Thinking to behaving to belonging. This is why the Bible says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or like my mother used to say, maybe some of your mothers said it too, Mike, garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) Garbage in, garbage out. Not always or to the fullest degree, but inevitably it is the case that that which fills the mind will eventually bear fruit in our lives. At this point in the text, the author takes a bit of a turn. Instead of simply describing the blessed man negatively by what he doesn't do, he now describes him positively by telling us what he does do. And the point of the distinction has to do with delight. That is, it's a matter of the heart, that which the heart desires, that in which the heart delights. Far too often we make the mistake of fooling ourselves into thinking that righteousness is simply a matter of forming a list of negative commands, you know? Thou shalt not. Or, you know, I don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Therefore, I must be spiritual, right? I must be righteous. And if you can simply steer clear of a certain group of behaviors you'll certainly be righteous. This is where many of us live out the whole of our Christian experience. Right? We reduce the whole of the Christian life to a, a list of negative commands, things that you shouldn't do. And thinking this way will very quickly, if you're not careful, thinking this way will very quickly lead you almost directly into patterns of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. As we overlook the condition of our hearts. See, we're not looking at the heart anymore. We're just looking at what we don't do behaviorally. Hear the words of Spurgeon. This is what he says. How few among us can lay claim to the benediction of this text. He's speaking of Psalm 1. Perhaps some of you can claim a a sort of negative purity because you do not walk in the way of the ungodly. But let me ask you this. Is your delight in the law of God? Do you study God's word Do you make it the man of your right hand, your your best companion and hourly guide? If not, this blessing, this benediction does not belong to you, you see. It's not just about what you don't do, but it's about where your heart delights. So the alternative to the counsel of the wicked, is to meditate on the Word of God day and night. We're in serious trouble in this area today. Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high in the church today. And I'm not surprised at all that so many young men and women 
are leaving the faith today in droves. It doesn't surprise me. They, they have never really understood the faith in the first place, let alone been equipped to be able to defend it. I once had a mom. She was upset with me because she was convinced that her teen was just simply too simple-minded to understand a little bit of Bible and theology. She didn't like it when I quickly pointed out the fact that her son had the capacity to understand the Bible, and I proved it to her by pointing to the fact that he had over 150 Pokemon memorized in his mind with all of their evolutionary stages and special abilities. You see? Your kids are brilliant, okay? They're smart. Maybe it's time you give them a chance before writing them off right before they even have one. Listen, the days of shallow, entertaining, comedic, moralistic sermons and preaching is past. That stuff's not going to cut it anymore. Now, more than ever, we need men and women who know how to handle this book, who are equipped to lay it bare on the issues of the day. Give us some men. Give us some men who know the Scriptures. Give us men who can open up the Word of God and give it to the hungry people of the day. If we lose our grasp, we will cut ourselves off from divine wisdom and the only alternative then, you know what the alternative is? Counsel of the wicked. That's it. So we need to know the word of God. We need to understand it. To meditate on it. But that's not all that's being communicated here. The psalmist isn't just speaking about mere familiarity with the pages of scripture. What he's talking about is one who delights in the Word of God. It is possible to find yourself in the place where your head is so pumped full of Bible and uh, Bible trivia and, and theology, and yet your heart is far away from God, and you become cold. I have seen people like that. I have been there. However, I think today, we run the risk of the opposite. Many people are in the habit of thinking that Bible knowledge and theology are somehow opposed. They're somehow opposed to deep emotion and true spirituality. That is, we've drawn a bold line between the cold intellectualism and theology and Bible knowledge of years ago and the burning passions of a spirit-filled life or at least something that resembles it, right? Don't you see, however, in this text, don't you see that the blessed man of Psalm 1 completely breaks the mold? When he delights in the word of the Lord, what's happening is that the intense work of the mind engaging with the scriptures is feeding the fires of burning passion in his soul. Both things are happening. As he studies and meditates day and night, his affections for God are being stirred. Theology and intense Bible study are not to blame for men and women with hearts that are far from God. You see, your theology and Bible study ought to really function like a 
like a telescope. Okay? You, you look through them. It would be foolish for me to praise my telescope. Oh, what a beautiful instrument to, to polish it frequently and then just put it up on the shelf there and say, oh, what a wonderful telescope and then never look through it. <laughs> that would be completely stupid. It defeats the purpose, you see, of a telescope. Theology and the Bible are like an instrument through which your eye, the eye of your heart is able to gaze upon the beauty, the immensity, the majestic glory, the radiant splendor of who God is is and when you see him with your mind as well as your heart you will be driven to worship for no man can gaze upon the beauty of the lord and not be affected unless there is something deeply wrong with that man as we come to verse 3 we see the psalmist now changes his style slightly And like all good poetry, he begins to paint a picture with words. The contrast is still being made between the righteous and the wicked. However, now they're being referred to metaphorically in verse 3. We read this, He is like a tree. He's planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. And his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The blessed man, the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, is here likened to a tree, a tree that is securely planted by streams of water from which he draws life. His roots make their way deep down into the soil, down to the living water where he feasts, And because of that, he never dries up. The land of Israel, some of you know, has a very hot and dry climate. And scattered throughout the wilderness, there are these little pockets of vegetation gathered around what they call wadis, which is basically just a small stream or a, a brook where water flows when it rains. In the illustration, if the tree is the man, then the the water upon which the man feeds is the word of God. The tree pictures for us true spirituality. The one who is truly spiritual and possesses deep and intimate relationship with God is one who is a creature of the word daily living in the word meditating deeply upon the word reading the word continually viewing all of life as somehow sustained and explained by it and being radically transformed by the word the fruit of his life feeds hungry people who live in the wasteland of the world around Don't be fooled. There is no such thing as one having spiritual life and vibrancy that is not also 
vitally connected, vitally connected to the Word of God. There is no such thing as spiritual vibrancy that is not also vitally connected to the Word of God. There are many people today who pride themselves on a a sort of spirituality that is purely subjective, being based entirely upon experience and emotions, who see intense mind-engaging Bible study as, at best, a secondary alternative form of spirituality, and at worst, an endangerment to true spiritual vitality. Far from being, far from making one a cold intellectual, meditation on the word brings life. While those who are feeding, those who are are not feeding on the word are dried up and dead, those are the ones who are dried up in this text. When the hot winds blow across the land, It is the one who has sunk his roots deep within the word who will not wither up. On the other hand, those who ignore the scriptures and pay them little mind will be like the wicked, which the wind dries up and blows away. They have no staying power. Listen, don't forget this. Never forget this. Dusty Bibles... Dusty Bibles inevitably lead to dirty lives and an even dirtier form of spirituality. There is no such thing as spirituality that is removed from the Word. There is nothing unspiritual about meditating on the Word. After all, is it not the Word of the Spirit? Did not the Spirit of God inspire this book and give it to the churches for them to feast upon and find life and vibrancy? Do you want to have a special, intimate access to the Spirit of God? Is that what you want? Open up the Word that the Spirit has inspired and given to the church. The Word of God was given to you as a means of God's grace not only to give you information about God, but to bring you life. It is a means by which you commune with God daily, where you hear His voice speaking to you directly, where you see His glory on display. It often takes diligence, hard work, discipline to understand the Word. But oh, the treasures, listen, there are treasures on every page for those who will just wrestle with the word. Like Jacob wrestled the angel saying this, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's, that's what meditation is. I will not let you go until you bless me. The wicked are not so. Do the righteous avoid the counsel of the wicked? It is not so with the wicked. Do the righteous reject the way of sinners? It is not so with the wicked. Do the righteous refuse scoffing? It is not so with the wicked. 
Do the righteous delight in the word of God, meditate on it constantly, feast upon its treasures? It is not so with the wicked. No, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Do you know what chaff is? Any farmers here? Chaff, that's all that stuff that comes out of the back of your combine. It blows away after all the good and useful stuff is removed. (laughs) That's like the wicked. The contrast is drawn between one who feeds on the word and has life and the other who feeds on the godless thinking of his own imagination and because of it is dead. Two alternatives. When David wrote this psalm, he was thinking broadly. He begins with distinguishing the righteous and the wicked and in the here and now. But eventually, that distinction reaches all the way out into the future. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked reaches to the very end of history where it is most pronounced. Look down at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those who delight in the Scriptures are distinguished in the here and now, from those who delight in the counsel of the wicked by the lives that they lead and the paths that they walk. However, on the day of judgment, they will be eternally distinguished as one is vindicated and the other comes under the wrathful condemnation of a holy God. The Bible says this, there is a way that seems right to a man. Right? All those scoffers, they think that their way is is right and it seems very right to them. It seems very reasonable and good and yet its end is the way of death. Quite often in the Old Testament, the word no is used. It, It carries this meaning beyond mere acknowledgement of something. What is suggested is more intimate knowledge. So when verse 6 says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, what it means is that he watches over it. He has established it. He guards it. And so it is not. it will not fail those who follow it. Meaning this, if you base your life on this book, the book will not fail you. You can take it to the bank. It will not let you down. It will never lead you astray. It will never guide you in paths that are wrong or crooked or perverse. It will save your life. Note, however, that it's not only the wicked who perish, but the text says that the way of the wicked, the way of the wicked perishes. The point is that any moral philosophy, any way, that is not founded and deeply rooted in the Word of God will inevitably fail. If not in this life, certainly on the day of judgment. History ends with the doing away of all evil and everything raised up against the glory of God. Think about that in light of the the constant... Oh, we got Siri here. (laughs) History ends with the doing away of everything raised up against... How's it going? (laughs) Against 
the glory of God. Think about that in light of the constant accusation of our culture. You're on the wrong side of history, they say. As if we're on the losing side of some moral trend. You silly Christians with your Bible, you think you know how everything should run, just bring yourself up to date, get with the times, accept the new norm. But you know what? The truth is that history is, in fact, going somewhere. It will culminate in the establishment of the kingdom of God in which righteousness dwells. Who do you suppose will be on the wrong side of history then? When that day comes, I want to be on the side of Jesus Christ. Do you? Do you? So there's a sense in which Psalm 1 teaches us that a delight in the word of God is the deciding factor for those who will avoid the coming day of wrath. After all, it was Jesus who said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, nobody is going to get to heaven simply because they read their Bibles and tried very hard to be good. That's not what I'm saying. But true delight, even if it's imperfect delight, in the law of God is an indication that something extraordinary, something miraculous has happened deep within the heart and mind of this man. The Bible says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from a radical, transforming work of God's grace, we are all like our father Adam, who was the very first human being to reject the way of God's word and to walk in the counsel of the wicked. We are naturally broken and bent away from God. We're repulsed by his word. Why do you suppose that so many atheists today aim their biggest guns against the word of God and biblical authority and inerrancy? There is something within our fallenness that hates the idea of biblical authority. And wherever the light of the scriptures shine, there you will see men and women, boys and girls, slinking back into the shadows. Because they love darkness rather than light. You know, there's only one man who has ever fully and completely delighted in the word of God and obeyed it perfectly. Jesus Christ is that man and he is the very embodiment of all of its wisdom and beauty on display. He is like a tree planted. Earlier I said that Psalm 1 was speaking of ideals. Well, Jesus is the man who matches all the ideals mentioned. When a man is united to Christ by faith, God then looks upon him as one who delights perfectly in the word. However, something else happens too. There is a deeper 
miraculous work that happens in the heart. There is a, a change deep down. The once hostile disposition is turned to one of delight. What started out as a small delight over the course of our lives increases more and more and more until one day, on that final day, we will have and experience perfect delight in the Lord and in all of his word. And what we see in Jesus will become the reality of our experience. What happiness we will have then. Think about it. What happiness we will have then. What pleasure we will have. What pleasure God will have seeing in us reflected back to him the very beauty and glory of his own beloved son. This is God's grace. This is what God is doing through his word in your life. And this is what it will be to delight eternally in the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that it is infallible unerring that it carves out the way that leads to life Father we especially thank you for the word the eternal word who is with the Father who came the embodiment of all your goodness and every command who bore our sin to Calvary and who is being reproduced in us by the power of the Spirit. We pray, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that they would be transformed by the renewing of their minds as they meditate deeply upon your word. And for this, we beg your grace. Father, forgive us for the many ways in which we have gone astray, even in this past week. We ask that you would give us fresh grace even today to commit ourselves afresh to the way of life, the way of the righteous. We pray this in Christ's high and holy name. Amen.